Substack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Don't forget to check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis. And it's where you can find details of our new membership model. Simply go to AmericanPurpose.com forward slash join. Coming up on the show today, Jonathan Pelson, author of the new book, Wireless Wars, China's Dangerous Domination of 5G and How We're Fighting Back. John, welcome to Bookstack. Great to be here, Richard. So congratulations on the book. What are the wireless wars? Well, it's a battle between, it's not the West and China because, you know, you have countries like Korea and Japan, Taiwan are closely involved in this, but this is the fight for who is going to provide the world's telecommunications networks. Now, I say wireless wars, but that's where everything is moving. And this is not a war over who gets to handle the phone calls that are made or the internet sessions. The wireless networks that are going in, 5G and beyond, are going to be controlling everything from autonomous cars to factory operations to farms and ports. And this really is something that America and free countries have thought of as a business competition. And I think all along, China saw this as a struggle for power, and they were trying to defeat the other companies that were making these solutions so that they would be ubiquitous throughout the world. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you start the book with the pandemic, which really is one of those light bulb moments. You show how China had used the technology brilliantly during the pandemic, that you describe it as a masterful use of mobile technology for public good. But you also show how people were puzzled at how China had managed to do this all so quickly and what the implications of that might be. Yeah, there was a, a friend of mine in Shanghai said, this is wonderful. China, in just a few weeks, created a mobile app, pushed it out to a billion and a half people that tracks who, who you are, who you're meeting with. If you're meeting with someone who's dangerous because they have COVID, and whether you've then met with them and met with someone else who may now be exposed to COVID, and what, what this person didn't seem to realize is that this system has been in place for years, and it wasn't COVID they were tracking as a dangerous uh, activity that the, that the CCP wanted to be monitoring and controlling. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it showed just how the Chinese government already had the tech to essentially see everything that certainly what citizens did, but, but also in many ways what they thought as well. It was not just a matter of putting wireless sensors to do face scans or temperature scans or detect proximity and location. They had to develop an AI capability. So they were using artificial intelligence because you cannot track a billion and a half people manually. And these systems were able to say, after years of development, which people do we need to keep an eye on? Who are they getting physically close to? What are things that don't look like coincidences? This person's a troublemaker, and that person seems to always be in the same spot on the same day of the week. And you can connect the dots through AI because there's trillions and trillions of interactions that are happening. You can't do that without really sophisticated systems. 
Yeah, and it's interesting, we had Peter Harcher on the podcast a bit earlier in the year, the Australian journalist who's, who's talked about Australia and China. Um, and and I, I was struck reading the book how really in many ways that Australia really is the first country that rings the bell on all of this, calling for an inquiry about the outbreak of the virus and so on, but recognising that, uh, that, that China's response and the belligerent response, uh, again, uh, has really important implications for the West. Absolutely. The, it, it was an extraordinary thing. What the Australian Prime Minister asked for, every country should have agreed on. Let's have an investigation and see how this awful pandemic started. China's petulant response was the warning sound to the world saying, if they will do that over this reasonable request, and they're willing to cut off trade and really harm the people of Australia, we have to look at supply chain now and interactions and maybe not decouple everything from China, but we have to reevaluate everything we're doing. It's, it was, in my opinion, a terrible misjudgment by Chairman Xi. I mean, in some ways, it, it seems in retrospect like a, a wake-up moment for the West. But, you know, I guess we forget that, it, that at the time... There was a, a lot of controversy, uh, and a lot of people were saying that this this is a kind of covert racism in a way, uh, the way in which people were talking about China. My publisher, uh, I, I originally had a line in the introduction of the book that said, uh, that speculated that the pandemic may have originated, uh, may have leaked from a lab in Wuhan. And my publisher, I think, reasonably said, you have to take that out or else we'll have to cancel the marketing campaign on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You will be deplatformed for saying that. I said, well, I didn't assert anything. I said, it may have. They said, it doesn't matter. That's the rule. It's uh, considered beyond the pale. You cannot imply or even question whether this came out of a lab. Now, just before we went to press, the head of the CDC speculated that he believed it probably leaked from the Wuhan lab. And so I just quoted him with his speculation and it went back into the book. But it was uh, typical of China's delicate uh, sensibilities. They're very easily offended, they tell the world. And the world has to be very careful about not saying anything or doing anything that hurts. It's, it's almost like it hurts their feelings is what they argue. Now, this is the most... Uh, this is a fierce country with a massive army and technology capabilities, but their arguments talk about uh, pride and feelings and really put the world on notice not to, not to mess with that. It's a very odd uh, diplomatic measure, and yet it's very successful. And in some ways, you can understand why many people were saying that, let's hang on, we need to be careful here, because as, as you show in the book, we are so deeply embedded in China that to upset that relationship has implications that uh, are almost unimaginable. And I think the key word there, Richard, is almost. I think that at least with 5G and mobile and telecommunications networks, China really was on the brink of just closing the trap. They were going to roll out their Huawei and ZTE networks across Europe. They've got Africa, Latin America, a lot of Asia, Russia, and right on the edge with the United States, if they had played their hand a little more patiently, and it's ironic because you know, China is, of course, the great patient nation. And the whole strategy of hide and bide as well. Exactly. Feign weakness when you're strong. Well, they, I think they played their hand a little too soon. When I 
So much that when I started the book in the beginning of 2020, I was talking about how Huawei was going to roll out across the world. And by that summer, I was saying Europe had closed the door on Huawei. And really, in my view, the free world was safe now from being infiltrated by a system that would be controlled by the CCP. But you show how it's completely understandable in many ways how we'd ended up in that position because they're bigger than all other telecom equipment makers in the world combined. Uh, you say that it's the best, but also it's the cheapest. And so pre-pandemic, it, uh, it really did look as if they would be building the world's 5G network, essentially. Well, th think about this. You know, I had a conversation. I started the book out as a business book. It became something very different. I was talking to a section chief at the FBI, and he said, where has Huawei put its cell towers in the U.S.? I said, well, nowhere. They, they can't break any of the big carriers. And he said, yeah, but where, where have they sold? I said, well, mom and pop rural locations, uh, Montana, North Dakota. And he said, you know, it's out there. I said, well, nothing's out there. Little family-owned cellular companies. He's the one who showed me that our nuclear missile bases in America are surrounded by Huawei cell towers. <laughs> And uh, I've since learned, after going to press from an intelligence uh, officer, that there are, and I've verified this, that there are uh, video cameras at the tops of some of these towers, and that is not where you put your video camera. The security cameras sometimes go at the bottom to watch the cabinets of equipment. But but what this uh, showed me was that they were they were going out to rural companies and saying, Nokia will do this for tower for $80,000, we'll do it for 10000 and who's going to say no to that? It's not illegal. State Department didn't ban it at the time. You can't blame everybody around the world for saying it's just as good or better. It's a fraction of the cost. Let's go with it. Uh, you do show, though, how the intelligence communities, particularly the Five Eyes uh, intelligence networks of the, uh, of the, of the English-speaking nations, uh, they were already wary, wary of, of China and Huawei, that the pandemic almost seems to give them the kind of leverage that everyone now is paying more attention and perhaps listening to them in a way that they hadn't been before. That's right. They had not... You would hear, and you still hear people say, well, there's no smoking gun. Where's the proof that Huawei is, you know, spied on its customers through the network? And first of all, that's not the only issue. Uh, everyone spies on everybody, and if it's Huawei equipment, it's just going to be easier, but that doesn't mean they're not spying on you through an AT&T network. The, uh, the question was, uh, you know, first of all, could they terminate service altogether? Uh, could they withhold Certain, you know, could they turn the network down, throttle it, or, or attenuate it so it doesn't really work? And if Huawei's controlling it, absolutely they can. There's no question that uh, the company that makes the equipment leaves its hands on it. But also, when they said there's no smoking gun, there were example after example. Uh, British Telecom rolled out Huawei in the early 2000s as part of its 21st century network. And there was concern, there was all this chatter that the Chinese established switches were chattering and sending far more information than they should have been handling and it wasn't clear where that information was being redirected but it was going somewhere. Delegation went to Shenzhen, met with the head of Huawei, came back, no acknowledgement, no statements, but they tore out the switches that were in question. No one spends that kind of money on a hunch or a, a fear. They say we found something and so example after example around the world of that happening.
Yeah, I mean, you mentioned throttling back the system there. What you're incredibly harsh on Angela Merkel uh, in the book, whose whose historical reputation seems to be taking a a nosedive uh, at the moment. But you know, I guess that the that the example of Russia and oil and the crisis that we're in there uh, is a is a perfect example or parallel of how these kind of things can be uh, used for uh, diplomatic purposes. There is a book called The Prize that uh, won the Pulitzer Prize. It talks about oil as the world's power, as the world's currency for uh, flexing uh, global power. And uh, the author speculates that someday it may be microchips that have that role. And I think he's been proven true on that. But also the idea of communications networks really become the throttling uh, power. Angela Merkel thought we can rely comfortably on Russia to deliver gas, and we can rely, she felt, on Huawei and China to deliver our communications. And uh, she sure missed, I think, clearly, an excessive reliance on the uh, Russian gas line was a bad idea. And I think just as clearly, her hard press to bring China and Huawei in, which she was finally turned back on, was another very bad, very dangerous idea. Yeah, it's interesting in in terms of thinking about these kinds of calls that, uh, as as well as Angela Merkel, you reflect on the uh, the Trump legacy that uh, and show how many abroad actually quietly admired the administration. That uh, there's a great line that you have near the start where you uh, quote an unnamed uh, official who says, "We hate Trump, but secret secretly we love what he's doing on China." I heard that time and time again, and, and as I've gotten to know some of the people, this is curious, people from the Trump administration who worked on China, I've had the opportunity to start working with, and people in the Biden administration, were, everyone's on board. There's nothing more satisfying than having a meeting at, at Commerce or uh, Defense and hearing the people I'm talking to referencing their former colleagues from Trump because there's common ground on this. Uh, there's a guy, Keith Kroc, was under Secretary of State under Trump, and he led something called the Clean Network Initiative, which happened right around when I was finishing the book, to get Five Eyes and about 60 other nations to keep untrusted equipment out of the network. And whether Trump was doing it for the right reason or not, and there's good arguments made on both sides, there were people in his administration who really got it, and they were doing the right thing. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting the the sense as well in in which generation after generation this has become a, a self inflicted wound that that essentially we were uh, as you show training Chinese telecom executives and engineers without really any thought about how they might be using uh, the training that they were got uh, that they got at the beginning. Uh, again, you say we taught them how to cook Western style, and now they're eating our lunch. Yeah, the, the idea, I was, in fact, I had set up that first program to train Chinese telecom executives because, as I point out in, in uh, I think it was the, the introduction to, to Wireless Wars, I, I was not able to compete with bribing competitors. They were offering the Chinese executives cars, and, and uh, we'd come in with a great offer from Lucent, my employer, which was the AT&T equipment arm, and then we'd lose the deal to someone who was driving around in a Volvo the next day. So what I did is I brought in these Harvard professors from Harvard Business School, and they would teach them the proper business of equipping a company. And they loved this. You know, the Chinese love brand, and Harvard's the best brand in business schools. 
and they love, uh, they value education. So we were, you know, checking a couple boxes there to, to teach them how to run a phone company. Now it turns out they ended up running the world's phone company, really, as far as equipment goes. What for the, for those of us who aren't uh, te techies um, and maybe don't understand the the complexity here? What why is five G different to older tech? We we haven't mind uh, we haven't minded China being uh, involved uh, before. What why why is it more than just faster downloads on Netflix? Yeah, and I tell you, the carriers are responsible for this misunderstanding, but that's how how marketing works. 5G is not faster 4G. In fact, it may not even be faster as far as people's real experiences go when this really gets rolled out. 5G, you had, you know, 1G was analog mobile phones. It was the very first cell phones. 2G was digital, so you could send text messages. 3G, you could send emails, and you could sort of get on the internet. 4G was this always-on experience that we have now where you can do Zoom videos and Uber and all these wonderful apps. 5G is not the next. 5G really is going to be about the Internet of Things and, and, and devices talking to devices, information talking to information. So the ports are going to be operated on 5G. When the, when the ship pulls in, wireless signals will say which containers have what uh, items in them, which come off first. They'll send robots or people to do the right activities. They'll track flow. They'll be in pharmaceutical factories measuring temperatures and process control and telling suppliers uh, through wireless links, send more of this, change your mix on that. This is going to be a wonderful, high-productivity world. That's really what 5G is about. Your, your phone right now, you can stream high-def video already. There's no screaming need right now for people to have even faster downloads to the mobile phone. Is there any sense at all that maybe we're overdoing this? I mean, I, when I think back to the to the late 1980s and Paul Kennedy and the rise and fall of the great powers and the, the threat of Japan and whether uh, Japan's technological proficiency was going to lead uh, lead it to outstrip the United States and uh, and so on. What, why, why is this something different? Well, you know, it's a great analogy you're making there, Richard, because people have asked me, well, you know, didn't we have this with Japan and they faded? Well, we did and they, and they did, but this is where the big, big difference is that I talk about, why the word war is in my book's title. Japan was competing. They wanted their businesses to dominate the business sectors of the world so that it would have wealth and prestige and success for their country. Uh, they built their terrible cars, their you know, Toyotas, Hondas. These were awful rust buckets. I remember them when they first came out in the 70s. And they decided, we need to have a great car industry. And they invested in it so that they would have a great car industry. The, the twist, though, is that China did not pour $75 billion into Huawei so that they would have a great telecom equipment maker which is really my premise going into the book, what I learned was, no, Huawei exists to make China and the CCP a great world power. They're a means to an end. I, I, you know, I don't want to call them the world's biggest front company. They're $130 billion in revenue, Huawei, uh, shrinking, though, over the last year because of the sanctions. But they were created not to bring glory to the industry and, and power to Chinese companies. They were created as a means to make China a more politically and militarily uh, influential country in the world.
Yeah, and the, the subtitle of the book is is how we fight back, uh, and it, and it's very striking in the book that uh, you show that to to some extent this war is systemic. That on the one hand you have China, which has this kind of coordination, so that everybody is is facing in the same direction. Versus, of course, within a democratic system, uh, something which you describe as the disorganized West. Uh, which in in some ways has been uh, an advantage, of course, to the West. But here, uh, you can see that it makes the job fighting back so much more complicated in many ways. Yeah, when when China took the lead, they did it by playing to our weaknesses, and that meant that when one company, AT and T, at the time the world's biggest company and the world certainly the world's biggest telecom company, they did service, they did equipment making, they would go into China. One single company dealing with 30 cities, 500 companies, multiple bureaus in the, in the uh, ministries in the country, and yet China sliced and diced AT&T. They'd play the sales teams off the equipment guys. They'd play the R&D guys off the finance people, and they split AT&T into a chaotic, uncoordinated company when it came to dealing with the Chinese. So they understood that it's every man for themselves here in in the U.S. and in, in the free countries, really, because that's what capitalism uh, is. That the basis of capitalism is self uh, determining what's good for you and pursuing that. That's not a bad thing. The answer to China, the way you fight back, is not to say, "All right, here's what we're going to do." And this has been proposed by some smart people with good intentions. Let's put ten billion dollars, twenty billion dollars into Nokia or Ericsson, the big European competitors, because America's out of the game. There's no uh, argument that we're just supporting our own champions. We have no champions left. They're gone. Motorola and Nortel, uh, Lucent are all out of business. And, and so people are saying, we'll put all this money in, and we'll put that big company up against the Chinese. That's playing their game. That's playing to our weakness and their strength. And I argue to do the opposite. What we ought to do is say, look at this permissionless innovation, this crazy, uncontrolled, unsponsored innovation that's led to Uber and Airbnb and Amazon and Google. These are companies that were not called for by the government. In fact, they were th stopped by the government. They had to go to court to, to use a home as a hotel without zoning or use unlicensed cabbies to pick up strangers on the street. And they were able to face the government in court and win and get rich doing it. China, the idea that Chinese innovators to say, I'm going to put my finger in the eye of the government. I'm going to do something that damages a, a venerable institution in China because it's a better way of doing this. They know better than to do that. It's a very dangerous consequences in China, no matter how clever and innovative their own scientists and engineers may be. Yeah, actually, you describe this essentially as our superpower. Uh, let's uh, clear up the, the, the role of the government is to clear a path to innovation. Uh, you say, and I, I was very struck, actually, that uh, previous guests on the show, Ariel Ezrachi and Morris Stuckey, uh, who wrote the book, uh, How Big Tech Barons Smash Innovation, uh, said something very similar, actually. There's a definite chiming here that the emphasis has to be on the plurality of ideas, that pluralism is the, is the way forward. It's the thing that has always made the West and, and, and democratic societies uh, successful. That's right. If, if the government's picking winners, that's never gone well. Even with consortia like uh, Semitech, which was to respond to Japan, as you're mentioning earlier, 
we said, all right, we'll put all this money in. We'll put a billion dollars, which, you know, 40 years ago was a lot of money. We'll put it into a chip initiative so that we can become the chip manufacturing giant again in the world, not the Japanese. Well, look, look where that led. It, it, for a few years, it helped. Um, but the big guys like Intel benefited because they would participate and the small innovators got crowded out and we ended up where we started with just some money wasted. The, the trick is really to turn loose companies that, uh, that can innovate on their own in the government's role. I initially was going to argue in the book, the government should just stay out of the way. I would have loved having a chapter called uh, government's role in this and just say, stay out of the way and then go to the next chapter. But as I really thought about it, there's a, there's a couple important areas where the government has to play a role because of the the history and the legacy that's already in place, the distributed uh, embedded base. One of the key things is standards. Uh, the Chinese have learned very cleverly to play the standards games, and they really lock out new entrants and real breakthrough innovation. You get good innovation out of Nokia Labs and Ericsson, but it's not breakthrough. It's got to maintain these companies' momentum, as, as they should. So the government's got to open standards up so that some guy in Caltech, some junior working in his dorm room, can write a piece of software that gets dropped into the network. Or some startup in New Hampshire that has a better antenna can say to Verizon, hey, use this in your network. Because right now, you cannot. That's like going to Mercedes and saying, hey, use this transmission software now. Mercedes will say, if we didn't make it, it's not going into our car. It can't fit. It will not work. But when you open that up, open those interfaces, you can spur all sorts of innovation. I, I guess the, the question is whether it's too late, that we can think of innovation, whether it's it's Microsoft uh, being uh, being uh, overtaken by Google and so on. But, but, but it tends to take a generation, doesn't it, for those innovators to come through and to dominate. And as, as we said right at the very beginning, you say in the book that uh, Huawei, they're the, they're the biggest in the world, they're the best in the world, and they're the cheapest in the world. Well, people have asked me, especially when I'm meeting with, with certain government officials, they'll say, so you think if we do what you're proposing in the, in the last section of your book that we'll be able to regain the lead? And I say, well, I, I didn't say I think if we do that, we'll win. I'm just saying if we don't do that, we're going to lose. And winning would require something like this. If we don't do something like this, we can't possibly win because China is too good at what they're doing. If we play their game, it's over. This is, uh, you know... There's something called Mulvennan's Law about how long into a talk you mentioned Sun Tzu when you're discussing China. So I'm going to violate that now at around the 20-something minute mark. But Sun Tzu talks about that. You know, if, if, if the other guy picks the battlefield and how it's going to be fought and the time and day of battle, you've lost before you've shown up. And so we've got to take control of that. And we still have, you know, Huawei is bigger than anybody, but they're not bigger than everybody. And that's how we have to play this. And finally, just on a, a personal note for you and, and also for listeners as well, in the epilogue of the book, you talk about uh, the warnings that you received and the fears that you may have had, even of the book itself being hacked and uh, the, the, the draft of the book disappearing and, and, and so on. So, I'd, you know, I wonder, you know, even as individuals, what can we do, what can listeners do to protect ourselves in, in this kind of Wild West environment that you're talking about? Well, you know that you're not being paranoid if you think that China is listening. Look, Nike is listening, 
and everyone else is trying to get a, a piece of your dollar, and that's the way the world works. And you're, you know, I remember the reports that the Samsung TVs were listening, even if you weren't using the microphone that people didn't even know they had built into them. So in, in less nefarious ways, marketers are trying to see what you're up to. China, you think, well, what do they care about me? You know, my kids' generation, they're much less concerned about digital privacy. But what they don't realize is they like to express themselves. If you live in China and you want to say, tell me more about Tiananmen. Okay, you're cut right there. The, I, the AI picks up what you've mentioned and you're going to have all sorts of consequences. In China, there was going to be a rally uh, about government issues. And what, what the government did is they turned people's COVID passports from green to red and no one could get on buses or trains to go to the rally. Uh, you know, it seemed like a great so, uh, public health thing to have these, these restraints. You don't have infected people getting onto a crowded train, but it was being abused. And so people who want to be able to tweet about what they want to tweet about need to know that if they're on TikTok, someone in China is looking at what they're saying and doing and who they're saying and doing it with and building an AI file. You think, well, they don't care about me. I'm nobody. Well, there's not a person tracking you. But somewhere in some AI system, they're building their file on you. And someday, they'll be able to throttle your conversations. People in the West were having Zoom discussions turned off because they were on conversations that China didn't want discussed. And now that got fixed, supposedly. But it really does affect your day-to-day -day life, just for even social matters that you think, why would China care? Why would China know? You can't assume that. You can be a little paranoid on this. And I guess that, I mean, there are those who say, well, hang on a second, this, this, there's an element of hypocrisy in all of this. Isn't, isn't the U.S., uh, don't, doesn't the U.S. have the best spying apparatus uh, anywhere in the world? So what's the difference? Well, it's for sure the U.S. spends more money, at least as far as we know, through the NSA and other groups to uh, observe and spy and, uh, and gather information. Now, what you have to step and, and is that good or it's bad? And, you know, I guess it depends on, on where you sit. But there's a difference between a democratically elected government for all the problems that we have in this country and in other free countries and an autocratic or totalitarian government where if you're of the wrong group, you know, Huawei helped develop a technology that would use face scanning and AI to determine if someone from the wrong race had entered a neighborhood. If you were a Uyghur and you were in the wrong part of town, it would tell the police to come pick you up and ship you off. Uh, this is a very different kind of government. People in America say, I don't want to get a speeding ticket from a hidden radar camera hooked to a computer. That's a violation of my privacy. Yeah, I think maybe it is, maybe. Uh, but at least the argument is we're trying to keep traffic deaths down. China is shipping people to concentration camps where there's organ harvesting, that valid reports have come back on that. And if nothing else, they're forcing people based on their race or their ethnicity to re-education camps. They're taking uh, people who say or write things that are not accepted by the government, putting them in prison or executing them for those thoughts. So for all the problems in free countries like the U.S., like countries across Europe and, and other parts of Asia, China is not like that they are a, an authoritarian repressive regime like like a handful of countries in the world today so the book is wireless wars china's dangerous domination of 5g and how we're fighting back it's written by my guest jonathan pelson uh, and published by ben bella books uh, but for now john congratulations again and thanks for joining us on bookstack
Great being here, Richard. Thanks. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Damien Marusic. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening.